right, good afternoon, everyone. This is Flint McLaughlin, and we're back at another web clinic with the Marketing Experiments team. Today is rather unique. We're going to be looking back on the last 12 months and uh, working together to learn what we have uh, discovered from uh, research study after research study after research study. We're currently engaged in more than uh, 1,200 various uh, experiments and studies, and we're going to be reviewing the last year and all that goes with it. We want to talk about how to increase conversion in 2012, and in particular, what we learned from uh, the last uh, 20,000 hours of research. So this is going to be a very fast, hard-hitting type of clinic. Uh, you can use uh, Twitter, that is hashtag Twitter, to uh, communicate with us or others. You can also use the chat feature in order to communicate to us as uh, this whole thing un, uh, un, unfolds. It's interesting for me today because I'm standing in our new studio. If you saw the video that we just produced, we've actually gone to a whole new studio uh, built inside a uh, green screen room, and we're all experimenting with this new technology. I think we're on top of it. I think it will go smoothly, but if it does not, somehow, some way, it's going to be Austin McCraw's fault. And I'd like to point that out right now in case uh, you need somebody to insult shortly after the clinic. Austin is, uh, uh, of course I'm teasing, but uh, Austin helps me through many of these things. And uh, Luke, uh, our executive producer, is kind of guiding this whole process, and we'll do our best to make it all come together for you. So let's begin and uh, drill right down into 20,000 hours, uh, 20, hours of research and distill it into 60 minutes. Uh, I'm, joined, um, I'm joined by... Uh, John Powell, who is a senior analyst that's done a lot of research with us, and uh, we'll look at each of these key pieces as we go forward. Now, gentlemen, I'm not running the slides right now. Either you give me controls or uh, you run the slides. Otherwise, I'm going to just keep right on going. Um, let's begin with the first experiment. This is Test Protocol 1214. It is a leading software provider. The goal was to increase total leads captured, and the primary research question is which process will generate the most leads. Uh, and uh, our approach was to develop a radical redesign of the complete lead generation process, focusing on essentially strengthening the communication of the value proposition. And, uh, and so let's look at the first treatment. Are we having some technical difficulties, and can I help you with that, gentlemen? All right, well, Luke, take us on to the uh, experimental background. Again, as we're unfolding this new technology, I've been told I need to cue the, uh, the producer because of uh, something they're experimenting with here. So let's go to that particular slide, and you'll see the background that I just reviewed, and I'd like to go forward right to the very first treatment. And that treatment is uh, showing you a paid search ad. If you have not seen this paid search ad, I'd like you to tell me what you might do as an audience to help improve the performance of this particular ad. Use Twitter or use uh, chat and tell me changes you would make to this Google paid search ad and uh, let's look at it. This is an experiment that ran for 18 weeks testing 16 different ads and uh, observing more than 950,000 unique impressions. I'd like to see your first iteration. Take a quick look at that ad. All right. I want to stay, uh, Luke, right on the first slide showing the ad. There we go. And audience, tell me some things you do to make it better. I'm watching. 
describe the software. Someone says, David says, include the call to action. Sally says, add a word to describe uh, the business, small or large. Pierre says, there's no clear value proposition. Michael says, more specific detail about the software. Uh, Greg says, the call to action. Uh, Chastity says, uh, it's missing the value proposition. Uh, I'm interested in what you think would be the value proposition. Someone tell me what the goal of this ad is. Quickly, quickly, use your... Use your chat or your Twitter account. What's the goal of this ad? And someone's asking questions. It is, Robert, you are correct. It is not to sell a product. It is simply to get a click. And so the value proposition for this ad is not the value proposition of the business. It is competing, not product to product, but ad against ad. And so we need an ad that will win a click over the other ads that are being viewed by uh, the prospect. So let's go to the next slide, and let's take a quick look at what we can learn from that slide. Uh, here you'll see example treatments that we prepared. These are all various uh, treatments designed to try and improve the response rate of that ad. And then uh, I'd like to point out for you the winning treatment, business software suite, number one on demand, 6,459 plus world clients, award-winning solution, free trial. If you look at that winning treatment, you'll notice a 21% increase in click-through. That's uh, from the original ad to the best-performing ad, and that's the beginning of a learning that I'd like to see unfold. Is that the highest lift we can achieve with this ad? It is not. Is there a way to get a higher increase? Yes, there is. Uh, in fact, we want to talk about something more significant than that, though, because we're moving towards one of the most important points we want to help you learn today from this experiment. And, uh, and that point will kind of drive all that I'm talking about at present, and that is that you must craft all of your messaging around your central value proposition. I will explain by taking you to the next piece of this experiment. So let's move to, there we go, to the next slide. And you'll see that the, the paid search ad test was only part of a testing strategy that involved the entire conversion funnel from the ad to the form page. And uh, there was a reason for this. In fact, what we were really doing was trying to optimize each aspect. We were trying to optimize the, the paid search ad, the landing page, and the form. And, uh, and if you'll notice what we saw in terms of the results, there is a 272% increase in overall conversion. What happened literally was that in the paid search ad, we saw a 21% increase. In the landing page, we saw a 54% increase. And then on the form, we saw a 97% increase. When you aggregate all of these increases, what you achieve is a 272% increase in conversion, and uh, you see a corresponding 66% reduction in CPA, and you see the optimized path producing more than four times the monthly profit. That is a 302% increase. It's a dramatic gain, and that gain comes from aggregating an improvement in a series of derivative value propositions. We're going to learn more about that as, uh, as the process unfolds, but let's look in particular at uh, the next uh, key uh, slide here. And uh, it is a slide that helps explain one of the most important learnings. You've got to get past the basic understanding of the value proposition and get to an understanding of the bigger picture. And so 
take a look at the derivative value proposition, and you're going to see a, a diagram here that might be a bit confusing, but let me unpack it. Again, I'm trying to craft 20,000 hours into uh, 60 minutes, so I'll say this, and then I'll give you resources to help you understand it in more depth. At the heart of every business is a central or a core value proposition. It is the answer to a question, why should I, why should I purchase from you rather than any of your competitors? And it has a contingency on the front side. If I am the ideal customer, why should I purchase from you rather than any of your competitors? That question drives the entire design of the business. This is uh, a, a value proposition that should uh, be overseen and, and protected by the C-suite, and in fact, by the founder or the CEO of the organization. Marketing can always influence that. They can typically communicate it more effectively, but we need to understand that there are three other types of value propositions. They connect to the central. We call them the three Ps. There is the prospect-level value proposition, and that is a proposition designed to answer that question as it applies to a particular prospect. There is the product level, and that is uh, the value proposition interpreted right down to a specific product. Why should I purchase this product rather than any other, even if it's another on the same site? And then there is the process level. Most of us are aware that there's some connection between the product and the prospect with regards to our value proposition, but we completely miss the process level value propositions. A process value proposition might be to click uh, on, a, on a form field and enter information. It might be a button, but it's all part of the process that helps move someone through the, the, the sequence that you offer them, the thought sequence. And so as we move to the next slide, let's think about the implications of that because we're moving quickly towards uh, uh, me showing you yet another point, but I want to make sure that you understand the basis. For every action you desire a visitor to make, there must be an immediate promise of value that outweighs the cost of the action. Now, that, that promise of value essentially is connected to a simple formula. If I had time, I'd draw that formula, but basically, uh, perceived value must outweigh perceived cost. And what you're trying to do is optimize not a web page, uh, not an email, not even a campaign. What you're trying to optimize is the thought sequence. And you must get past the page and deep into the mind of the person you're interacting with to do so. And as you do that, what you'll discover is that there are four components. These four components look like keywords, perhaps on a slide, but they're much more than that. They're scientific elements, and these elements have a huge impact on the success of your campaigns. The first is appeal. If your general offer has significant appeal. You can often measure that fact doing reverse search work in the engines. Remember, the Internet is more than a new channel. The Internet is the laboratory in which you can test and refine your customer theory. And every major business, even if they're an existing legacy business with a huge engineering background, let's say, and, and billions of dollars in existing revenue, they still need to consider the Internet as more than a channel, but as a laboratory. And what it can do, for instance, is help you define appeal. Now, we think appeal. I think most of us would recognize that the force of the value proposition is connected to its appeal. But what we may not know is that that appeal can be diluted if we don't take account for the exclusivity factor. 
That is, if there are other options, other ways of satisfying that appeal, then, then our value proposition's force is diluted. Now, it's not just that point, but it's also credibility. I don't mind if you have a value proposition. In fact, it doesn't matter if you have one with remarkable appeal. And if you have absolute exclusivity, if in, in that process you still do not have uh, credibility. People need to believe your message, and if they don't believe your message, it doesn't matter how, how potent it might be. In fact, having a value proposition is in itself no guarantee of success. The key is being able to articulate it in such a way as to make it credible, which brings me to another critical point. Even if you have the other three, it does you no good if you don't have clarity. Clarity is more or less the foundation of the entire value proposition. It's shocking to me how many companies I've reviewed that don't know how to even communicate their value proposition in a way that's easy to understand. No product, no offer, no reason should be proffered that isn't anchored in a way for someone to visualize, to conceptualize what you're trying to say. So in some sense, clarity is last on the list, but it's not the least important. Clarity is essential to the process, and all four of these build on each other. First, they need to know what you're trying to say. That's clarity. Then they need to be able to believe it. That's credibility. Only when you've achieved those two can you move to the other key components, appeal and exclusivity. Without those four, your value proposition cannot be cannot be measured effectively. Without being cognizant of those, you can't predict its impact and thus the behavior of the people you're trying to reach. Now, I feel almost frustrated that in a little bit of time, we're talking about something so significant. But if you look on the next slide, there's a link to some more research at the, one of our uh, sister sites, marketingexperiments.com. This is part of the NECLABS family. You can go there, and there's more than $15 million worth of research, which is no cost. And you can get this particular report and study it and learn from it. And it'll talk about this. And there's more resources about value proposition. All of it's free. And it'll help you unpack this concept that I'm trying to more or less present in a very short period of time. Keeping that in mind, we want to move to the next principle, which is simply this. You must maintain cognitive momentum uh, in every step of your cell process. And in doing so, what you're trying to achieve is vital. This cognitive momentum keeps people from slowing down because we found that as uh, there is a, a, a problem in rhythm or cadence or velocity, conversion starts to be mitigated. Let's look more. Here's an experiment. This is Test Protocol 1368. This is a B2C company. They're offering package vacations. In this test, we're focused on improving the checkout process. And uh, let's look at uh, what we have to do here because it's a complicated cart. Many of you uh, have a cart system attached to your website. You're trying to figure out the most effective way to get people through it. It's typical for us to see rates as high as 50% when it comes to abandonment in the average cart. How do you overcome that? Well, it's not just about building a more clever cart. It's not just about increasing choice. It's not just about design. There's something more fundamental that you have to do to get more people to say yes at every single step of the car. And let's look at an example by going on to the uh, control. So here's the original. You can see it behind me. It has both, uh, uh, and this is kind of the top view broken out, and that's what you'll see. It's a longer page, and we're, we're focused on the top. But if you look at the top page, 
you'll see how the cart starts to work, uh, work itself out. You might see some problems in that cart right now, but let's look at the bottom half. So take us to the next slide where we can see the top and the bottom. So now you should have a sense for what the cart looks like, but let's go a step further and, and think about what we might do to improve it. Let's just ask the audience to help us. Look at that uh, cart page and tell us something that you might do to make it more effective. Someone said the buy button is below the fold. Um, someone said, uh, I'm watching these come in. Max has a friction of the solo, solid headers, the, the yellow header on the page. He's correct. Someone else says the images of products. And I'm, just, I'm looking at this uh, screen. You may or may not be able to see in front of me with all of your responses. Todd says, break it into two pages. Alex says, remove the unnecessary fields. Carol says, have the call to action at the top and the bottom. Uh, Joe says, remove the navigation from the cart page. Uh, don't ask extraneous questions, says Pierre. Diana says, move a continue shopping button to the bottom of the page. All of these are excellent ideas. Let's, uh, let's drill down and think about it some more. So let's look at the whole page, and we'll look at uh, the control, and then we'll look at some of the optimization strategies. You can see four of them. One, and that is to reduce as many steps as possible. Also, to reduce as many form fields as possible. Also, uh, to feature a kind of single main column in a vertical linear path, and then uh, utilize a, a third-party anxiety reducer, something to reduce the psychological concern associated with certain steps in the cart. All of that's integrated. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but let's go to the next slide. As you look at this slide, uh, you should note uh, more or less the experimental. You can see the treatment. We started to incorporate those strategies into this treatment. And so uh, look at the changes highlighted in yellow, and let's go a bit further. Take us, continue through. All right. Take me to the next slide, if you would, please. And, uh, and as you're doing that, you'll see the bottom of the page that's been optimized. Look at the lock and the credibility indicators and a number of changes in, in the card itself. And let's think about it for just a moment. Let's move on. So what you're looking at is we've removed the graphical bars. We've added an image. We've added a pop-up product description. We have added testimonials. We've added step indicators. All of these are designed to help generate improvement, but something deeper is going on. See, what I'm afraid of is that you, you tune into a clinic like this, and you hear these particulars, and you focus on the particulars, and in doing so, you go back with a list of rules. Optimization is about something deeper than that. It's about understanding the cognitive psychology of the purchase process, and it requires you to get underneath the particulars and ask why. Why make these moves? Not because you heard them on a clinic, not because uh, Dr. Flint McLaughlin, and I'm being facetious, not because Dr. Flint McLaughlin said we should do them, not because uh, you had a committee meeting where you designed the page and the most influential person in the room said do it this way, but because you have a deeper, more fundamental understanding of what's happening in the mind of your customer. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, but let's look at the two treatments side by side. You'll see behind me the control and the treatment. And uh, with these two, you can start to... Imagine the psychological impact of the latter over the former. But let's look at the uh, marginal improvement we're trying to achieve with these significant but small changes. So uh, take us to the results. You'll notice that this new cart is producing a 12% increase in total revenue. Now think about that. 
We often talk about 50% improvements in conversion and 64% improvements in conversion. But when you think about your cart, you're late in the process. And when you're doing a design of experiments, you have to factor in the fact that an improvement here is connected so closely to the P&L that you experience a significant difference immediately. That's 12% more revenue off the same spend. See, we work so hard to get these people in the cart. Let's not lose them once they're there. Now, as you're thinking about that, it raises a question. Let's take the learning. Let's go deeper than the case study and ask ourselves a question that will help us understand how to plan for 2012. So uh, take me here. Shopping carts are not just a utility. They are the strategic means by which you maintain the forward momentum generated in the conversion process. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm pointing that out. Because I want to I ask you a question. Let's go to the next slide. So here's the question. What do you optimize for in a shopping cart? Is it the design? Is it the, the metrics? Is it, uh, is it revenue? What is the basis? What is the foundation? Often our optimization is, is built around a kind of social dynamic. We don't even recognize it. If we were to do action research, if we were to bring in the right cognitive psychologist and turn his or her talent or research inward on the marketer instead of on the customer, what we discover is that in many cases when we go to fix something like this, what's really dominating the process is a social dynamic. It's the fact that you're in a group and that people are commenting and that influence is being uh, exerted back and forth and that instead of your optimization process being founded or rooted in a science dynamic, it's actually a social dynamic. But let's go past that. If we were to apply science, we need to go beyond even the revenue. We need to go beneath the revenue. We need to think underneath that about what's happening in the mind of the person interacting with our offer. The overall objective of a shopping cart is to maintain forward momentum. We have them in the cart because we assume, and this isn't always the case, but let's assume because it's the right assumption that they're in the cart if we've done the rest of the work right on the front side because they're moving towards a purchase. We may have spent $100 to get them in the cart. If we lose them once they're in the cart, this is particularly costly. This hurts the P&L. What you need to recognize, and if you look at this diagram, you can, you can start to understand that there's a kind of cognitive momentum that's taking place as they, as they move through the process. And you'll see that it peaks at the product page. It peaks where they make that decision. And the goal in the first stage is to engage the visitor, to lead them, to, to help them uh, understand the value proposition. And then the next goal, and this is where it's climaxing, is to achieve a kind of conversion commitment, a yes what we call the ultimate yes. Now, you're not at the ultimate yes. See, all of marketing is about influencing a decision, and each decision requires them to say yes. And you need a chain, an unbroken chain of yeses to achieve an ultimate yes, the purchase. It only takes one no to arrest the entire process. What's happening here is we've got a yes, 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 and a major yes at the beginning of the cart process, but the yeses are not over. They have to say yes to entering that information. They have to say yes to submitting their credit card. They have to say yes all the way through the confirmation page. And if for some reason we stop exerting the influence of the value proposition earlier in the process before we've got the ultimate yes from them, we'll lose the cognitive momentum in the cart and we'll lose the opportunity.
So the lesson here is to make certain that we're maintaining cognitive momentum throughout the process. And there are three, three chief impediments that keep us from being able to actually achieve that. The first is a assumed value. It's a grave mistake. It's, it's, it's believing that we presented enough value in the earlier part of the process that they're automatically going to say yes to every other ask. That costs us every single day. As marketers, we need to realize that, that today, in fact, while you're on this clinic, your company's leaking revenue. In fact, billions of dollars are leaking in our systems because they're not self-optimizing and because we, we, we haven't learned how to, how to keep this cognitive momentum taking place all the way through the process. We can't even define our value proposition, much less message it correctly. And then once we do, we haven't a clue about how to in, integrate it all the way through every step. But that's key. Now, that's one issue that stops us, assumed value, thinking that we've said enough about our value early on. But if you'll remember the first experiment we looked at with NetSuite, we got a 97% increase on the lead gen form, 97% more completions in the third step of the process. Why? Because on that form, we embedded the value proposition yet again, giving them enough upwards force to get them through the funnel. Let's look at uh, the second, which is unaddressed anxiety. This is not recognizing that throughout this uh, process, there is anxiety laden at various key points. You control the chronology of the thought sequence with the geography of the page. And you must think of this as a linear journey. And as they're moving through your card, there are various places, various junctures where anxiety is intensifying. What you have to do is help them say yes. And to do that, you have to alleviate anxiety. You have to overcorrect it. We've taught about that. There are other clinics where you can learn about this. Let me take you to another resource from this year. The link you'll see on the screen behind me will take you to original research where, again, you can learn about CARTS, and you can take what I've talked about in just a few minutes and study it in depth. This brings us to the next point. This is the next tactic. Before I go any further, I'm standing in the studio, and it's new. I've got this green room. It is so green, I don't know what to do. It's like I can't tell where the walls and the floor are. And I have people staring at me through the window. It's like I'm in a fishbowl. And I'm trapped in here with, with, with Paul, and I'm not sure if Paul really likes me but it feels a bit claustrophobic. He's been throwing things at me as I'm talking. And John Powell is standing by, and we're trying really hard to deliver value. We know that your time is precious, and we are also excited. We spent a year. We spent 20,000 hours trying to learn more and communicate it to you. Can you give me quick feedback before I go any further? Is this working? Is this helping you? And if you missed the link, ask us, and, uh, and we'll do our best. I'm, I'm seeing some of your comments coming in right now, and I'm reading them because I wanna, I'm trying to self-optimize and make sure I'm not going too fast, too slow, that you're getting everything you need. Uh, I'll watch your input, and I'll quickly shift over and move to this next point. Tactic three, never underestimate the power of a value-based headline. I learned something in this experiment. It's really interesting. It's going to start out sounding as though, oh, of course, yeah, that's better. You reduced friction. But don't, don't uh, sell it short. It's what we learn after that that's, that's interesting. Let me begin by giving the background. You can see behind me, this is... Uh, this is another uh, case study, test protocol 1000, 1111. And the goal is to increase uh, qualified survey panelist registrations. And uh, the bottom line is which, which process, which path will produce the highest lift. So let's look at the uh, treatment or the control. 
the, the page you see now is the experimental control. You'll see a lot of blue boxes. Those blue boxes are our attempt to anonymize the control. You can see it behind me with, with, the, uh, with uh, you know, the basic flow. Don't worry about the blue boxes, but get a sense and think about this page and ask yourself how effective it might be. While you're, while you're looking at that, by the way, I see a chat that came in from Scott. It says, ouch. Scott, you're right. Scott, tell me what's wrong with this page. In fact, any of you on the, on the um, chat right now, tell us how you'd fix this page. Give us a, some, some quick input. No headline. Uh, Damon, you're absolutely right. That's coming up. You nailed it. Uh, Michael, the long form. Yes, it is long. Uh, as you can tell, we're, we're, we're looking only at the top of the page in the big uh, graphic, and the long piece here helps us understand uh, how, it's, uh, how, how long it really is as we're moving through. In fact, uh, but Paul, are you directing these? Okay, so just move us right, yeah, let them kind of see. You may go up and down a couple of times, but help them get a sense of the length of this. And I'm listening to you. Philip says, it's ugly. Uh, someone says, uh, the floor of the page is disjointed. Uh, Max says, four to six steps, that's what we need. Uh, and someone says, it's just poor overall design. And Matt Silver says, buy me dinner before taking me to bed. <laughs> Matt, I don't even want to go to bed with you. I don't know about the dinner part, but uh, I'm... <laughs> Clearly, you've been on other clinics, and you're right. Um, that, uh, I think that's Matt's way of reminding us that, in effect, we're asking for too much too soon. And, uh, and uh, that's a critical process and understanding, and that's a critical principle, understanding the thought sequence as it unfolds. So let's, let's think about it now as we did uh, as analysts. We applied the conversion heuristic, the conversion sequence that you've heard about over and over again these years. C equals 4M plus 3V plus 2I minus F minus 2A. We analyzed the cognitive psychology of the process. We decided to reduce friction. That's a negative inhibitor. And we decided to increase the value proposition, which is essentially uh, getting the perceived value crystal clear. Remember the four elements? We needed clarity. We needed credibility. We need appeal and um, exclusivity in the way we express the value proposition. Every value proposition must have an only factor. Uh, let's then go a step further here and take a look at the actual uh, correction a bit more. The first thing you see is a headline. Now, this new headline was added to clarify the value proposition. Is it a good one? No. No. In fact, there's a headline test coming up, but it at least is a headline. Keep going, Paul. Take us to the next slide. So I'm looking at uh, a series of Treatments, these are headlines 2 through 10, testing against the control. And so uh, take a look at these. And uh, by the way, I'm being told through the window that I have to keep moving sideways in the studio. Austin keeps, it looks like he's doing a hula dance outside the window. They want me further, but I can't see my notes from over here, gentlemen. Uh, anyway, take a look at the headlines because we learned something really remarkable about this. So in a sense, we reduced friction, we added a headline. Take us on, Paul. Uh, as we did that, as we did that, you can see that we moved the form fields from 24 to 15. Now, I just want to stop there. I remember working on a project with the New York Times seven years ago where it took 18 pages to sign up. 18 pages. In the early years, we weren't even cognizant of the fact that all of those extra steps caused trouble. And yet today, many companies still don't get it. I was on the phone today with a major publisher, one of the largest publishers in the world. I'm looking at a process that's so convoluted, I don't even understand it. And I had someone say to me on the phone from the other side, and they're great people they are trying to improve this. These are marketers trying to fix a problem that's been created really with a development-based approach to marketing. 
technology is a function of marketing. Think about that. We could talk about it in a different clinic. But they didn't have that problem. Marketing is serving technology. And in this case, they said they have people who actually partway through the process are asking for refunds and their money back and, and saying they're lost and they don't understand. They're being overwhelmed with friction. Most of us, however, have realized that the number of form fields should be reduced. When we first started talking about this, people were surprised. Today, it's common. But what's interesting about this experiment goes past our understanding of friction. Let's move on quickly. So if you're looking at the, at the next slide, you'll see the control and the treatment. You'll see the treatment is shorter, and uh, there is a headline involved. Let's quickly go to the results. Predictably, I don't think it's a shock, we see a 10% increase in registrations. Now, we can talk about how to improve that more and how we improved it more, but it's really, this is not a session about bragging about how big our lifts are. It doesn't do you any good if you come away thinking the scientists at marketing experiments are so clever. You need to come away from this time on the phone and on the net together with ideas that you can take back and apply immediately into your own situation, into your own context. We want you to get results. So think with us a bit deeper. Because here's what's intriguing. As we started studying the results, we were surprised to see some of the treatments perform significantly better than others. This revealed that the difference in conversion came not necessarily from the form field reduction, but from a change in the headline. So first we had a no headline version, we saw that. Then we had an initial headline, and then a series of headlines. Look on the right-hand side and notice the difference in conversion made by the headline alone. This is just from the headline, and there's a sweeping difference. Uh, it ranges from a low of 2.95% to a high of 10.44%, which is remarkable. What's going on here? Let's look a little bit deeper. What we discovered was that there was a pattern in those headlines that had the highest response. Audience, study this. Talk to me. Marketers, tell me what you think about these headlines. Read them and let's guess which one do you think produced the highest lift? I'm going to watch your votes. I'm going to walk over off my little marker that I'm supposed to stand on. I'm thumbing my, my nose at the production team, going back over to where I can read your responses. And uh, Jeff says eight. And another says two. And Stephen says six or eight. And Gary says two. Robert says two. Someone says four. I see another four, a two, a seven. Uh, it looks like uh, Carol believes it's a six. And uh, Rhonda thinks it's a 3, and uh, Jeff says it's a 10. Marketers, just think about this for a moment. I've got to move on. This isn't in my notes. I'm going to run out of time. But what would happen if we had Jeff and Rhonda and many of these that I just talked about, Pierre, sitting at a table trying to write a headline? You can see that they all have a difference of opinion, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with a difference of opinion. The problem is, if you build your marketing optimization program around a social dynamic instead of a science dynamic, you'll never get to the bottom line because none of us are, are good enough. I'd like to tell you, if I've learned anything in the last 15 years of research, it's this. There are no expert marketers. There are only experienced marketers and expert testers. Experienced marketers can draw on their experience, and they glean some insight, and they, they have pattern recognition unfolding. But they're not really expert, and I'll tell you why. Because a marketer is constantly trying to predict human behavior, and human beings are a mystery. If you don't 
believe that. Look at all the wonderful models in game theory and see how they failed to predict the economic disaster we've been living in. Game theory and many of the key axioms and components that work out in our perfect models are constantly being sabotaged by the, by the reality of human nature. And as marketers, we can't always know. We just can't. I don't have to be an expert marketer, and neither do you. Nor, listen, and I say this to you if you're a leader, nor do you as a leader, Mr. CMO, have to be or pretend that you're an expert marketer. None of us are. We may have some experienced marketers, but we can become expert testers because testing is a skill, and it doesn't depend on the nature and behavior of human beings nearly as much as your projection here about which headline will work. So as you think about that, let's learn some more about these headlines. Here we go. In front of us is uh, the headline that won. Everyone here, everyone here that voted for headline two, give yourself a 10% raise. Let your boss know that we approved it here at McLabs and, uh, and celebrate the victory. Get paid to take free surveys. Produce the 10.44% lift, which is substantially higher than all of the other headlines. Now, that's not all. There's more to be said about this. <laughs> Jeffrey, Jeffrey, I'm going to say your last name. Jeffrey Sui wrote in, I'm the man. I take it that means, Jeffrey, I, I take it that means that you voted for number two. Congratulations. Um, let's think deeper, though, because there are two principles to remember when crafting a headline, and we're going to see as we study this data a little bit further, there's more. I was asked, and I can't do it now, perhaps in another clinic, I was asked to comment on a statement I made in one of our internal meetings, and that is, everything you need to know about marketing can be learned by simply crafting proper headlines. The, the very basic principles of human nature, how you appeal to human nature, the essence of the value proposition, the, the calculation of, of, of perceived value and of perceived cost, all of those processes, come to play when we start to think about headlines. And if you break a headline down into its basic grammar, its modifiers and its nouns, its subject and its predicate, you can learn almost everything you need to know about marketing. Right now we can't do that, but we can learn a lot from this headline, so let's just think. Here's a principle. All marketing messages must be centered primarily on the interest of the customer. <laughs> Wait a second. We all know that. We think we know it, but we don't operate that way. At the heart of so many failed pages is the agenda of the marketing team. The widget they created, the flash presentation that has to be there, the other options that were generated by another party, the political compromise that became your landing page is not designed with the interest of the prospect in mind. Therefore, when it comes to crafting headlines, you must emphasize what the visitor gets rather than what they must do. Now, I want to stop for a second because there's a lot more I want to say about headlines. And if you've heard my other teaching on this subject, I've said to you that a headline is only and not more than a pickup line. I've explained how it works. Its job is to get you into conversation. That's what a headline is. We could talk about that. I could illustrate that. I can't. I don't have time. But we have taught about it in other clinics. And if you want to know which clinics, send us a note. We'll connect you with the proper research. But let's move on. Let's look at the data set again. Look behind me, and you'll see a particular pattern emerging in the way these headlines are structured. If you'll see in green, you'll see that we've reorganized this uh, list so that we've put it in descending order, and in the descending order, we've zeroed in on those headlines that are producing the highest 
possible yield. So in this role, uh, HL3, wait a second, why is it called HL3? I thought it was HL2 before. It's a typo. It is a typo. I started to say, Jeffrey, that you, you are no longer the man, but guess what? You are still a man. Um, it's just that we here at Mech Labs uh, have multiplied incompetence on all sides, and I'm sure the typo is mine. Um, it is HL2, but look at the order. You'll see that as you roll down this page, those headlines that are highest performing Focus on what you will get. In fact, three of them begin with the word get, and the other three imply the word get. For instance, when. All of this is, is focusing on what you achieve, what you receive, and in doing that, it's immediately connecting with the self-interest factor. Those headlines which perform less all have a different structure. By the way, when you work in a headline, you need to think point first or point last. If you don't know what I mean about that, check out our clinic on copywriting where we talk about point first, point last. For now, the great takeaway from this can be seen in the next slide when we summarize with a key principle, and that is the goal of the headline is similar to the goal of the opening scene in a movie. It's to, it's to arrest the visitor's attention and get them into the first paragraph. It's, to, it's the pickup line that draws them into conversation and opens them up to dialogue. So you need a point-first structure, and on the front side of that headline, you need to emphasize what they get, not what you want them to do. Let's move, uh, let's move on, and uh, you'll see behind me a whole clinic on headlines with more research and more uh, content that will help you if you're thinking about how to write more effective headlines. I'm on the last tactic. You've been doing well with me. I'm checking my time, and we have about 14 minutes to invest together. Let's take those 14 minutes and pack them with this final round of content. I am on the fourth principle, and it is this. Use testing not simply to get a lift, but to get a learning. Essentially, use testing as a means of developing your customer theory. Now, if I had the moment here, I would draw, and if I had the right whiteboard in front of me, I would draw, and I would simply say to you that the way we perceive of and the way we've utilized these, the idea of the sales and marketing funnel is, is flawed. No one falls into your funnel. People are falling out. Gravity is not your friend. Gravity is not working for you. Gravity is working against you. If you were to take the traditional funnel, invert it, flip it upside down, you'd get closer to reality because more people are falling out than are coming in. You need a way. You need a way to drive them up the funnel and the force, the organic natural force of this world is dragging them out interruptions, problems, uh, uh, competing offers, all of those factors drag people out of your funnel. The force that propels them upward one yes at a time, one step at a time, is of course the value proposition. Not just the core, but the derivatives. We looked at them, the product, the prospect, and the process level. At the top of that inverted funnel is an understanding is the customer because a series of micro yeses lead to an ultimate yes and the ultimate yes is the purchase. At the top of that funnel is the customer and what you need to be doing is understanding two things. Marketers, listen to me, you don't have a website. It's not a site, it's not a web, and it's certainly not a page. You can't crumple it up, you can't cut it with a pair of scissors, you can't, you can't light it on fire. 
What you have is a series of zeros and ones that create an illusion, and that illusion is designed to help you, the marketer, have a conversation, interact with someone else, get inside of their mind, and talk with them. For that to happen, you've got to understand what they're thinking. So at the top of that inverted funnel is the customer theory, and it informs you what they're thinking and allows you to predict their behavior and the difference between a remarkable company and an also land company, the difference between Apple and so many others is a deep, fundamental understanding of what the customer really wants. Once you know what the customer wants, you can predict their behavior, and that is the key to success. So you need to know two things, what they want, and then you need to know basically the micro path that they take to get it, all of those micro yeses. That means your funnel has multiple sides, and on each side is one of those paths. So let's, let's think about that now as we look at this next slide. So Paul's taking us, and uh, apparently I'm supposed to tell you about our next web clinic. We're going to talk about one company. Man, I was, I was on a roll, Paul. I, I was getting there, and you're telling me to promote a clinic. Okay, we have a clinic coming up. It's on the slide. It's going to be, I hope it's going to be good. I don't know what it's going to be. I haven't read it. Uh, that, that, that's coming up. We want you to, uh, to, to know about it, so if it's of interest to you, you can register. Uh, many times people can't get onto these calls because we max out at 1,000 seats. So you may want to uh, register and get involved as, as fast as you can. I'm going to move on. Here is, uh, here is, I, yes, okay, I, I've got more. All right, they surprised me with this. If you would like to become a research partner of Mech Labs, Paul, the man in front of me, is guaranteed to increase your conversion rate by 600%. I will give you Paul's home phone number. If you don't get a 600% conversion, you can call him 24 hours a day. He will come to your house, and he will guarantee a conversion rate. Also, if you're single and are having a problem on the dating sites, Paul will optimize your, I don't know what you call those sites, your, your dating website application form. Uh, just uh, the, the truth is we're looking for partners to conduct research with and to field test your ideas. You can see the form. Go there, and if we can help you, we'd, uh, we're always looking for the right partner. Let's move on. All right, back to the protocol. Here it is, test protocol 1427. Think about that inverted funnel with multiple sides, the paths of micro yeses, the customer theory, and let's look at this test. Here's the goal, test protocol 1427. The goal is to increase the number of completed leads on the home page. So we have another which question, because it's single factorial in design. And John Powell, you're familiar with this, aren't you? Why don't yeah. you give us some background? John's been with us for a long time. He is uh, one of our... Uh, key analyst who's driving lots of success all over the world as he conducts research. I think it's the world. I don't know if you're working on international or U.S. based, but John's overseeing a tremendous amount of complicated research projects, and uh, I'm asking him to kind of tell us a little bit about this. So you can even tell Paul when you want to advance, uh, uh, John, but go right ahead. Okay. Thanks, fact, Feel free to come up here if you want, John. Sure. Uh, let me give you guys some background really quick. This Reg Online is event, it's about event management software. Truth be told is that they had a challenge, and for many years they've got a product that allows you to manage your event, do your uh, stuff, everything from you know, registration pages, sending out emails, uh, everything that you could possibly need. But they seem to be having a problem getting more people to take advantage of their service, more specifically their free, um, their, you know, free new accounts. So if you guys could take me to the next slide. Let's take a look at their control. So this is what their page was, and let me clarify something. This home page is actually has been through many steps of optimization. They've been doing a lot of A-B split tests. So we're actually looking at an optimized page from their perspective. But still, they couldn't seem to drive the needle up any more than maybe three 
percent relatively, you know, plus or minus. So uh, you've got your testimonials, lead forms, screenshots, uh, headline. And uh, if you were to actually fill out those form fields, you would actually get to this page in which you would set up your username and password. So it was a two-step process. Take me to the next slide, please. So we, our geniuses here at Marketing Experiments, decided uh, to... We yeah. say geniuses in the loosest possible just, way. Just wait until uh, you see this. So we decided that we needed to test two things, product-level-based uh, value and process-level-based value. We changed a lot. So at the top, you're going to see a little bit of product-based value. We decided to talk differently about the product. Okay, we focused on free access. Okay, this is what you get with your free access. And for process-based, process we actually split the process up into multiple steps and reinforce the value on each step. If you take us to the next slide, here's one of the steps. Uh, so we actually took that first set of form fields, divided into two, uh, reinforced a little value on the right. Next slide, please. And then finally, the one that you're familiar with, username and password. So let's go to the next slide real quick. Let me ask you guys a, a question. Which one do you think did better? Let's take a look. Control or treatment? I'm control watching it to come in. John's uh, next to me right here, and uh, uh, control says, uh, Tanya, uh, control, 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 treatment says someone, treatment says someone, control, control, treatment. So why? Uh, you because people saying control, you don't why? have very much why? confidence in MechLabs. <laughs> right, well, why control? Tell me why. I'm watching your comments. Okay, give me some proof. Why control? Okay, I'm still seeing control. The headline is cleaner on the control. Okay, less friction. Uh, sweet headline on the control. I like the graphic. Okay, graphic. Okay. iPhone. iPhone. Okay. <laughs> so we got a lot of different things. So clearly we're taking a bet here on you know, product-based value, how we describe the product. So let's, let's show them what happened. Next slide, please. Okay, well, you guys are, are winners. And, uh, about, yeah, but yours is about 50%. Right. 50% treatment. So we made a bet and we lost, okay? In spite of having some clear value, and when I talk about value, I'm talking about next step value. Like this is what you get with your free account. It didn't work. What was really interesting about this is that we actually got a significant increase in click-through, about 25%, but of those people, they didn't complete. And at the end of the day, we actually lost by 24% relative. Now, I, I want to stop here, too, because John is using language that's typical uh, in the average marketer's group. He's right uh, in that uh, the, the treatment produced a lower conversion rate, but I want to stress something, and that is that the goal of a test is to get a learning, not a lift. And we learned exactly what we needed, and that's where we're going next. And you need to start thinking about your, your testing in a different way. Testing is not simply a way that you try to, in some chaotic fashion, select a few pages, drive up the conversion rate, and earn some more money by the end of the quarter. Testing is the way you improve your understanding of the customer's thinking processes so that you can take all of your marketing efforts and refine them with that deeper, more fundamental understanding. The goal of a test is to get a learning. If you get a lift every test you run, you're not testing right. You're not taking enough risk. You're not asking the right questions. So use your testing process to get a deeper understanding. And what we did was convert that understanding. And we've got three slides more to show you about that particular case study, and we're going to keep moving. I will pack the last seven minutes straight with, uh, with uh, content that I hope will help you. John, quickly tell us what happened next. So let's go to the next one. Now, let me tell you something. This is truly not experiment two. This is about experiment five or six. To Flint's point, 
Testing was our strategy here. We needed to discover, okay, why wasn't that product-based value working? And, okay, why did the process-based value give us a little bit but didn't finish the job? So we ran multiple experiments in different channels. We actually ran another experiment in the homepage channel on just the product-based value messaging alone. And guess what? We got some gains. We had some learnings, but they were incremental. So what we decided to do is follow up on this test and do a major radical redesign using what we had learned in previous testing. If you go to the next slide. All right. So you see the control, great winner from before, and now you're seeing a new treatment. But there's something different about it, okay? You could just say, well, again, we threw a bunch of stuff up there, but we actually didn't. See that top section up there with the message, let your events manage themselves, the get, manage, build? We tested that messaging in a separate test and found an incremental gain. Another thing that we also tested was the thought sequence. By eliminating navigation and forcing them through a sequential thought process about the product value, we were able to uh, see a difference in another channel. So uh, let's take a look at the results. 90%. And we didn't even split it up into three steps. We kept the same two steps, 90% increase, and as we continued testing on process-based value proposition, we actually increased it cumulatively to 141%. And right now, we're actually working on prospect-based uh, value proposition optimization. There's still much work to do. I'm not satisfied with what we've done. I'm not satisfied with what we learned. We're not even over here slapping ourselves on the back because it's not enough to get a conversion lift. It doesn't hit the P&L until you can convert the lift into a learning that you, can, that you can permeate the organization's marketing messaging with. Thank you, John. That's an excellent uh, example. We have just five minutes left. I have more to say on this point. I'm going to tie it all together. I think the last three slides are perhaps the most important three slides in the entire deck, so let's go there and invest the balance of our time. Uh, the goal of the test, you've heard me say, is not to get a lift, but rather to get a learning. It's there in black and white now. And to achieve the maximum amount of learning, your test should be designed around two key elements, a research question and uh, a theory question. Now, most of us don't even know the difference. We can't define a research question, and we don't understand the theory question. So let's uh, drill down on that as swiftly as we can. The research question, if you're in a kind of split test format, be it single factorial or multifactorial, be it, in other words, A, B, you know, A, B, C, D, E, or some kind of multivariate model, in either case, it's still which, which combination, which, which page, which path, which headline, it always begins with that critical word. In fact, any research question that doesn't isn't set up properly for the test. But underneath that is a more fundamental question, and let's talk about that. What's really happening is your research question indicates behavior, and you need to think of it this way. All of our focus groups are insufficient if we don't combine them with behavioral testing. With behavioral testing, we can look at a, a choice made by a, a group of customers or prospects, and we can say, based on that choice, there's a fundamental learning we can extract from the behavior. How do you get to that learning? Simple. You connect the which question with a why question. Why did they choose headline A over headline B? Why did they choose this call to action over that call to action? Why did they choose this page over that page? Why did they open this email over that email? And when you ask the why question, what you've really done is you've set yourself up to a big and more fundamental theory question. What does this tell me about my customer? Now, you may recall we opened up 
talking about the ideal. We opened up talking about the value proposition. We said the value proposition is, in effect, the answer to this question. If I am the ideal customer, why should I purchase from you rather than any of your competitors? That's vital. But in doing so, in, in asking that question, it comes down to that critical first contingency, the ideal, the ideal customer. What you're trying to do is understand the mindset of this ideal customer. And in doing that, in doing that, you're able to predict the behavior in the future, and thus you're able to improve the results in all of your marketing efforts. I'm being told by my staff that I'm out of time because they have to wrap up some questions regarding a survey. I'd like to teach you more. We'll be back in two weeks. Let me know if this has been helpful for you. We're going to do our best. In fact, we're going to be certainly uh, producing all of this in video format where you can watch the movies or the videos as well as, uh, as uh, the articulate presentations and the various versions that we have on the net. Thank you. If you enjoyed this, tell a friend. We'll be back.